You're listening to Jesus is Everything, the teaching ministry of The Way, Eugene. Grab your Bibles and turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Not 2 Chronicles, 2 Corinthians. I made a big old mistake on Sunday on that one. That happens. Good thing people like to correct me. That's good. That's good. That's all right. You know, uh, one of my areas of interest as I study just just personally <coughs> has been over the last season um, uh, the history of the church and ancient faith. And when we say ancient, we mean like anything longer than, you know, 500 years. And we start getting back into what's considered antiquity a thousand years ago, 2000 years ago. It's an interesting study. And, you know, that song, Lord, I need you. Uh, I need you every hour. I need you. That's a great lyric. And it actually represents something that's very historic within the history of the church there have been periods of time in the church where there were hourly prayers that would be said, right? Uh, people who dedicated themselves to seeking the Lord through prayer and intercession and those things, uh, depending on what church tradition you're from. But there would be, and we even see it today, right? Uh, requests for there to be 24-hour prayer meetings, those kinds of things, or churches where there's constant prayer available or constant worship taking place. Man, that's that's a powerful thing, and it's something that's actually very, um, I think, very historical and important that we realize that every hour, there's not a moment of our day that goes by that we don't need the Lord in everything that we're doing. Well, <coughs> here we are. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, we're finishing up this first part of the chapter and jumping into the second part, which we've already touched base on a couple Sundays ago. But Paul, in verse 10, makes this statement regarding judgment, which is what we talked about on Sunday. And if you missed that, you can go back and listen to it on the website or the podcast, thewayeugene.org, all that good stuff. But here's what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, verse 10, and, uh, verse 10, first of all. He says, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. Now, this issue of judgment is a big one. And like I said, we discussed it on Sunday, so you can listen to that. There are some people, especially in the faith, people who would say that they are followers of Jesus, Christians, who when they get to this issue of defining the difference between the great white throne judgment, which is the place where God judges our lives and makes the judgment of whether we are with him for eternity in heaven, as we call it, or separated from his love and grace and mercy in hell, as we call it, that's the great white throne judgment. What we also hear of here in 2 Corinthians 5 is what Paul calls the judgment seat of Christ where we will stand before Jesus and he will judge all of our works, meaning everything that we did in our life and what he's going to judge is the intentions of our heart, is what we were doing done with a pure heart of like, I just want to worship the Lord with this, or was it done selfishly? And that's where we start to hear in scripture descriptions of things like treasures and rewards and crowns. That's where we get that description is at the judgment seat of Christ. Now, there are some, like I said, within the body of Christ who hear this and just go, I don't really care. 
as long as I get into heaven, that's the only thing that I'm concerned about. And I find that to be a problematic perspective. That's a problem. If, if in our salvation, what should be a, a love for Jesus because of his sacrifice on the cross, if we simply say, the only purpose of that was for me to slide in on my knees through the pearly gates, maybe I'm smelling smoke, maybe not, but I get into heaven, that's all that matters. That tells us there's, there's something wrong with our heart. If we don't care about what Paul says here, that we are going to stand before Jesus and answer for everything that we have done in our life, if we don't care, as long as at the great white throne judgment, we get into heaven, there's, a, there's something that's, that's not right in us. There's an attitude that is sort of not cohesive with what it means to be, as we'll hear in just a little bit, a new creation in Christ. In fact, if someone has that attitude where they just say, oh, I don't care about my works and, and, and being judged for good works versus bad works and the intent of my heart, I just want to get into heaven. There's a point there where we have to stop and consider, or that person who has that attitude has to stop and consider their own confession and repentance. Was it authentic? Or was it just, what can you do for me lately, Jesus? And that's a, that's a fearful position to be in. We should love Jesus in such a way that the changing of our hearts, from hearts of stone, as the Bible describes it, to hearts of flesh that can be molded into the image that God desires us to be, that that change of our heart has a distinct impact on what we do, what we think, what we say, all of those things. We should be concerned with our behavior. We should be concerned with our thoughts. We should be concerned with the purpose and meaning of our life. So we move on from that judgment statement in verse 10 to verse 11. And I'm actually going to read uh, several verses here, and then we'll go back and unpack them as they like to say. Verse 11 says, therefore, because of this judgment that we're going to stand at, at the seat of Christ, before, therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. But what we are is known to God, and I hope it is known also to your conscience. We are not commending ourselves to you again, but giving you cause to boast about us so that you may be able to answer those who boast about outward appearance and not about what is in the heart. For if we are beside ourselves, it is for God. If we are in our right mind, it is for you. For the love of Christ controls us because we have concluded this, that one has died for all. Therefore, all have died and he died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. To go back to verse 11, Paul says, knowing the fear of the Lord we persuade others. This fear of the Lord is exactly what Paul had just been talking about. It's this knowledge that there is going to be a judgment, that there is going to be a moment in time where, we, where all people are going to stand before the Lord and give an answer for their life, both eternally, but even in addition to that eternal judgment, the judgment of what the purpose of their life was, what it amounted to. Oftentimes we as Christians have been told that, that you know, it's just, just faith. Faith is all that matters. 
And in regard to our salvation, that is all that matters. There's nothing we can do to earn salvation. There's no amount of good works we can do to convince God I'm good enough to be in your presence apart from believing upon his son, Jesus Christ, who died on the cross. In regard to our salvation, the great white throne judgment, it's, it's simply faith. But what we've missed out on in recent generations is the idea that our life means something, that our behavior means something, and it means something eternally. And that's something that we have to wrestle with and we have to process through is to go, every word that I say, we do, this is what we studied on Sunday, every word that I say, every thought that I think, every, every action that I take is going to have an eternal consequence. And so it's important for us to know that. And Paul says, because of this fear, because of this fear that we have, knowing that there's going to be a judgment, he says, we persuade others. This is the whole mission of Christ. If we know this truth, that we're going to stand before the Lord, then it should be in us to persuade other people to say, hey, have you heard about Jesus? Do you know, do you know that there's going to be a judgment? Hey, what do you think happens when you die? What is your belief about the afterlife? All ways to enter into that conversation to go, hey, here's what I believe that there's going to be a judgment that we're going to stand before our creator and give an answer for our lives. And so Paul says, because of this, we persuade others. If you wanted to um, see a really great uh, visual example of these two judgments, just to kind of get them straight in your mind, um, you could just look up on online, um, Great White Throne Judgment, uh, Bema Seat of Christ Judgment, but specifically uh, search out Dr. David Jeremiah. He's a pastor down in Southern California and a seminary professor. He's got a great chart that he came up with that really outlines the differences between the judgment seat of Christ and, and the great white throne judgment of God the Father. And it's, an, it's a great visual. I, I probably should have had it all prepared and queued up here, but it's a great one. Look that up, Dr. David Jeremiah and his chart comparing the two kinds of judgment. Now here's what Paul goes on to say. He says, but what we are is known to God, meaning that God understands their purpose in their heart, in their mission, both he and his companions. And he says, and I hope it's known also to your conscience that when you're true, when you're, when you're, when you're true to yourself and you really sort of get down to brass tacks, you know what our purpose is as well. Because remember, Paul's had conflict with this church. This church has, has criticized Paul for different reasons, for saying that he was going to come to them and then changing his plans, right? For being harsh to them and saying you're, you're accepting of sin in the church and you need to not do that. This church has had reasons in their mind to criticize the Apostle Paul, but what Paul says is that in your conscience, in your heart of hearts, you know what our purpose is. You know why we're doing what we're doing. In verse 12, he goes on and says, we are not commending ourselves to you again, we're not bragging to you, but giving you cause to boast about us so that you may be able to answer to those who boast about outward appearance and not about what is in the heart. Paul makes a big deal about this, and then he goes on and extrapolates this in chapter 6. Paul makes a huge deal about the difference between the outward appearance 
and the inward heart, which is a reflection of the exact way that Jesus would condemn the Pharisees in his own ministry. The Pharisees were those religious leaders of the day who knew every little nuance of the legal law of the Old Testament. They knew everything that was holy and right to do in their behavior, but inside their hearts were wicked and rotten. Jesus says, you're whitewashed tombs. On the outside, you look nice and clean and bright and sparkly, but on the inside, it's just a bunch of dead bones. Jesus knew their thoughts and their heart, and it was ugly. Paul says the same thing frequently. The outward appearance, it's withering away. It's wasting away. Everybody's going to get old. Everybody's going to get wrinkly. Nobody's going to maintain their good looks no matter how hard they try. And what's on the inside is the only thing that matters in regard to the substance of your life and what you're going to answer for. And Paul says, listen, we're not bragging about ourselves, but we're giving you ammunition to fight against those who want to criticize us, me, Paul, and my companions in our ministry, because we don't look as good as other ministries. And so in verse 13... <coughs> He says, for we are, if we are beside ourselves, it's for God. So if we look crazy to other people, understand it's quite simply we're just trying our best to serve the Lord. He goes, if the things that we're doing seem a little bit odd to other people, if the way that we pray in public or the way that we pray or worship, if it looks kind of funny or pe people are sort of just wondering what it is that we're all about, understand that it's for the Lord. That the things that we're doing, it's not to draw attention to ourselves, it's for the Lord. And then he says, if we're in our right mind, or it appears that we're in our right mind, it's for you. Our purpose is to reason with you and to teach you. And here's, here's sort of the sucker punch. Here's the whole reason. Verse 14, Paul says, for the love of Christ controls us. Another translation says, it constrains us. That's the idea of it sort of hems us in. It's sort of, it's sort of there's these barriers on, on our right and our left, and we can only go in one direction. We can, we're controlled, we're compelled, we're constrained to go in this one direction. And he says the reason why we're compelled to go in this one direction is because it's the love of Christ that does it to us. And because of the love of Christ, we have concluded this, that one has died for all, Therefore, all have died. And he died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. This is what our lives are supposed to be controlled with and by. Love for the individual. A desire to see people saved from the eternal torment of separation from God's love and mercy. I've mentioned that a couple times tonight specifically in that manner because I need to challenge perhaps an idea or a thought that we might have from previous instruction in church. And just, just to tickle your brain a little bit and, and have you consider this. Psalm 139, mark, this, mark down Psalm 139. And consider this for later meditation. Go back and read it. But I'll just read this section of, of Psalm 139, verse 7. It says, Where shall I go from your spirit? Or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. Now listen to this. 
if my, I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. Sheol is a reference to the place of the grave, and it's used in an eternal context. If I ascend to heaven, you're there. Well, yeah, heaven, that's the dwelling place of God, right? Well, if I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. Let me challenge this concept that we have that hell is a place absent of God. Heaven's the place where we experience God, right? His light and his love and his praise and worship and all those things. Well, here's the thing that, that perhaps might be a new twist for us. Hell is actually the presence of God as well. It's just the presence of God absent of his love and mercy and grace. Hell is the full presence of God, the unveiled wrath of God against sin for all eternity. Now that's a crazy concept, right? That, that God in his fullness, because remember, God is everything. He is love and mercy and grace, but he's also judgment and anger and hatred of sin, the thing that has separated his creation from him. He has a right to be angry and hateful toward sin and rebellion. God hates those things. And so understand that the reason that we would care about an individual is not because we have a quota to fill in terms of saved souls. It's because we care enough about a person to go, I simply want you to experience the love and grace and peace in God's presence for eternity, not his eternal wrath and anger toward your sin. This is what Paul says this is what compels us or constrains us. It's the love of Christ, the love of the individual. Well, to go back to 2 Corinthians chapter 5, Paul finishes that thought again in verse 15, saying that he, Jesus, died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. The all that is being talked about here is the all in regard to who have believed upon Christ for salvation. That Christ died for all in regard to who believed upon him for salvation. That's the all. And that those who live, might meaning live in Christ, have a new life in Christ, might no longer live for themselves, but rather live for him who for their sake died and was raised. When you, when you, when you start to understand the big picture of Paul's concept of life, and ministry, that they're not two different things, but that our life when it's in Christ is completely subject to the mission of Jesus and the ministry of the gospel, you start to understand why Paul can say things like, listen, if people think that we're crazy, it's not that big of a deal. We're not here to put on a show for them. We're not worried about how we look. We're just interested in getting the message out to people. That starts to have some real implications and perhaps even convictions for us when we look at our own lives or the ministry of the church at large. What are we most concerned with? The mission and the message? Or are we concerned with what people think about us? This is one of those things that we grow in in our faith along the path of walking with Jesus, abiding with Christ. It's just like being a, an adolescent, right? Moving from adolescence into your teenage years and then into, into adulthood. Somewhere along the way, you start to realize, hopefully, you start to understand that no one else really cares about what you're wearing. At a certain point, people stop judging 
what it is that you look like on the outward appearance, and they only really care about who you are as a person and how you care for them, right? People, listen, look at ourselves. We are far more concerned with ourselves than anybody else, right? We're more concerned about how people, like the relationships that we have, how we feel about ourselves, our health, our looks. We're concerned about ourselves so much we, we have to stop and realize when we're putting ourselves in the position of, of trying to please other people, listen, they just don't care that much. Everybody's concerned about themselves to a large degree. And Paul just says, <coughs> none of that stuff matters. We're not worried about what it looks like on the outside. We're worried about what's, on it, what's in the heart. And just like an adolescent or a teenager or someone who moves on into other periods of life, hopefully they learn and understand quickly it, it just, what's on the outside really doesn't matter. The car you drive doesn't matter. The house you live in doesn't matter. How you use those things for the kingdom matters. It, it, that, that's the heart of, of the ministry of just going, I care more about someone else than I care about myself. We'll get into more of Paul's explanation of that as we move forward here. Look at verse 16. Paul says, from now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation, that is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. I want you to look at that again. Verse 19, that is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself. Mark this, not counting their trespasses against them. Remember, in the context of the great judgment, Right? The two judgments that we talk about, the Bema Seat of Christ, the Judgment Seat of Christ, the Great White Throne Judgment of God. God is not counting our little sins and tallying up all the bad things we did in one list and all the good things in another list and then weighing them out in the cosmic scales going, well, do they pass the test or not? Do I let them into heaven or not? God is not counting our trespasses against us. If there was a message for for someone who feels guilty about sinful things in their life, it's this message that in Christ, when you're with Jesus, when you abide with Jesus, when he is your savior, God no longer is counting your sins. He already knew you were a sinner. All you needed was one. I think that's one of the big mistakes that we've, that we've been fed throughout, throughout popular culture, really, is that there are degrees or levels of sin that make us better or worse in God's sight. Listen, there's only one sin that, need, that we need to commit to separate us from God. It doesn't matter if it's a little quote-unquote white lie. It doesn't matter if it's a big sin in our mind. Any sin poisons the well, if you will. Just one. That's all it takes. And so God is not counting our sin. We need to help people understand that, that listen... When you're in Christ, God simply loves you, simply just adores you and has grace for you, not because of you, because of Jesus. That's the critical point to understand. 
Verse 17 is important. It governs everything that has been spoken up to that point. Paul talking about his ministry, how things look on the outside versus the inward heart. Verse 17 governs or explains all of, that Paul, all of what Paul has said up to this point. Therefore, he says, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Paul's teaching throughout even the letter of 2 Corinthians has given worth or value or weight to this statement that he makes. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Even as he says in verse 16, we no longer regard anyone according to the flesh, that when they're in Christ, we don't, we're not worried again about the outward life of another person, that when they're in Christ, we see them as a new creation. We see them as something entirely different than what the world sees them as. All the way through 2 Corinthians, Paul said in, in 4.18, we look not to what is seen, but what is not seen. Verse, uh, chapter 5, verse 1, he says, Our earthly tent will be destroyed, but we have a heavenly home that has been prepared for us. Chapter 5, verse 7 says, We walk by faith and not by sight. Back just what we read in verse 12, We don't glory in appearance, but in heart. This new creation that we are in Christ, the old passed away, the new has come. It's not always something that we can see externally right away. It's, it comes from the inside out. It's a heart that's been changed. It's a mind that's being renewed. It's thoughts that, that are praiseworthy worthy to the Lord. It's a heart and a love compelling us on in the mission of Christ. It's abiding with Jesus, being with Jesus in such a way that everything else that we start to encounter in life gets colored by our love for Jesus and this new life that we have. Well, look at verse 20 and 21. <clears throat> like I said, we covered these a couple weeks ago on a Sunday. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. That's a, that's, that's a powerful statement, and we'll, we'll have it repeated in just a second. But just that idea that God uses us in the ministry is humbling and powerful. God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. This is a statement in verse 21 that just simply confirms and drives home the uniqueness of Jesus Christ. He is utterly unique in the pantheon of religious figures in the history of the world. There's no one else like him. And this is what we have to stand on in terms of, of any question or debate that anyone might want to have about our faith and, and the differences of, of our biblical Christian faith versus Mormonism or Jehovah's Witness or Islam or any other practice of religion. It's the uniqueness of Jesus. Jesus didn't simply show us a way to live. He said, I am the way. Abide in me and I'll abide in you. That whole idea of abide in me and I'll abide in you, it's quite simply become me. That's the idea that Jesus is trying to convey to us. We are to become Jesus. That's the point. So he didn't just show us a way. He said, 
I am the way. He also didn't just give us a list of ways in which we can defeat sin in our life. What Paul just shared with us and told us is that Jesus became sin and received the judgment from God for sin, which was death, and he did that on our our behalf. He did that for us to the eternal praise of his glorious grace. He did that for us. He died so that we don't have to die eternally. We died a sin, but in the same way that Christ was resurrected, we are resurrected with this new life to live, becoming more and more like him. Well, chapter six, this is where we hear that statement from Paul that again is sort of mind-blowing. Paul says in chapter six, verse one, working together with him then, we appeal to you not to receive the grace of God in vain. This is a hard concept for us to understand sometimes. But the reality, and it's all throughout scripture if we open our eyes to it, is that God actually calls us to partner with him in the work of salvation. Now this is, this is again, it's a hard concept. The work of salvation is all of the Lord. The Lord saves people. It's through Christ's death and resurrection. It's through the power of the Holy Spirit in Jesus. It's through God's purpose and plan eternally, omnisciently, omnipresently, omnipowerfully, all those things. Salvation is of the Lord. And yet he calls each one of us to partner with him. All you have to do is look at Matthew 28 and the great commission that Jesus gave to his followers, to his disciples. He says, all the things that I've taught you, all the things that you know that that I've shared with you, you go out and tell people now. Like, wouldn't it have been, listen, wouldn't it have been easier at some point if Jesus just had somehow arrived in some magical way and appeared on like TV screens for everybody on a loudspeaker that just says, I am the son of God. I'm dying on the cross for your sins. I'm gonna raise up from the grave and then just believe on me and you'll have eternal life. You'll go to heaven and not hell. Wouldn't that have been easier in some way, right? And yet God's design and his plan was that absolutely happened. Jesus died on the cross and rose from the grave. But what he did was invited you and me into the equation to say, now you guys go take that message to other people. Not only Matthew 28, but even Paul talks about it in Romans chapter 10. He says, how is anybody going to hear the good news of this Jesus unless someone goes and preaches to them? That's why the scripture says, blessed are the feet of those who bring good news, right? That's the whole idea is he has called each and every one of us to go out and participate in someone else's salvation by loving them, serving them, sharing the gospel with them, praying for them. That's what we're called to do is partner with God. That's, if that's not mind-blowing to you, I'm not sure what is. But for God to look at me and go, hey, why don't you come and be on my team? That's kind of unheard of. That's, that's, not, that's not appropriate, God. You do not want me on your team. And yet he says, yeah. I want you to come and I want you to tell people about me. Now, Paul begins to do something in verse 2, 2 Corinthians 6, 2, that he does frequently and that I'm a huge fan of. And I point this out for a very specific reason, but let's read uh, verse 2 and I'll explain why it's so important. For he says, Paul is now quoting Old Testament scripture, in a favorable time, I listened to you. And in a day of salvation, I have helped you. Behold, now is the favorable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. 
Within that short quotation, Paul referenced Isaiah chapter 49, Isaiah chapter 55, Psalm 32, and Psalm 69. One of the greatest tools you, you have in your hands is um, a reference Bible. If you have a reference Bible, where as it works through the scriptures, it has these little uh, letters next to certain words. And then down in the small print here, um, which I'm starting to need glasses for, believe it or not, there, there's a little reference point where it says, that's a reference back to that scripture. Okay, it's a, it's a powerful, powerful tool. But what you see Paul doing and why there are so many references at the bottom of the pages of Paul's letters is Paul is constantly quoting... Old Testament scripture. He's constantly using Old Testament scripture to illuminate and elucidate the points that he's making to the church in the New Testament. He does this frequently. In fact, in regard to what is spoken of here in verse 2, behold, now is the favorable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. The author of Hebrews says the same thing in Hebrews chapter 3, which is why a lot of scholars believe that Paul wrote Hebrews even though we don't know because there's no author that's, that's no name that's given in the authorship of that letter. But a lot of people, a lot of scholars believe it's Paul because he uses that same reference again and again. Now, here's the reason I point that out. Because this is an example to us. This is one of the things that we can look at Paul and go, man, I'm not very good at it. I don't know how long it's going to take me to get there. But I need to be someone who constantly has scripture on their lips. And, and here's the thing. I think we've all been around people who, who like to quote scripture to make themselves sound really pious or hyper-spiritual or holy perhaps. And sometimes you can tell that that's not really authentic because they're not actually quoting the scripture right. Like they misquote things or, you know, make up books of the Bible that don't exist. We did this game one time with a bunch of college kids where we were doing this sort of relay race. And we were like, what does Hezekiah 36.7 say? And they're just like, okay, it's got to be Old Testament, Hezekiah. And they started looking and looking and going through. The, and like some of them took a little bit too long to figure this out. There is no book of Hezekiah, right? Again, knowledge of scripture. Paul is constantly referring to Old Testament scripture. He's constantly quoting God's word as he further explains God's purpose and plan to people. It's been said many times that the best commentary on scripture is scripture, to understand what God's doing in the New Testament, it really helps to have an understanding of what was going on in the Old Testament. The Old Testament, like, again, it's been said many times, the Old Testament's just this big picture book of New Testament truths that came to life in Jesus Christ. It's good to know those things. And so I say this as an encouragement. Maybe you're someone who says, man, I just don't memorize things well. I'm not good at memorization, or I'm just not a good reader. I don't like reading. I'm, I'm not good at it. Listen, there are so many tools that we have now to get scripture into us. Reading, yes. Listen, audio Bibles, podcasts, listening to sermons online. There's so many ways for us to get scripture into us, but it's a matter of consistency and volume. We just need to get a bunch of it into us and latch on to pieces of it and then start speaking it out as we talk. Again, not to look pious or holy to somebody else, but what happens is, like Paul says in Romans 12, when you renew your mind, when Ephesians 5 one talks about, when Paul says that we are washed with the water of the word, man, there's something that happens to us that our heart starts changing and we start looking at all the situations in life through the lens of scripture. And we start talking about the things of God, the things of Jesus, in a way that it's just sort of natural. 
And again, it's not a competition to say who knows the most verses. That's not the point. But in conversation, it should strike us to say, oh, that reminds me of what God says in that scripture. Or remember that story from the Old Testament? That situation, man, we can learn a lot here in this present life and situation from what God said in the Old Testament. And so we need to be people who read the scripture more, listen to the scripture more, practice speaking it out and, and just having it in our mouths. I, I so appreciate Paul on this point as the example that he sets for us. Well, let's take a look at verse three as we move forward. Paul says in verse three and four, we put no obstacle in anyone's way so that no fault may be found with our ministry. But as servants of God, we commend ourselves in every way. And then he's going to go into a big long list here, but here's, here's the preamble to that. Here's what Paul is saying. Paul does something here that I find incredibly compelling, incredibly convicting, and something that I think is worthy of devotional meditation. Like this is a section of scripture that if you want to go and just spend some time with the Lord and try and grab some perspective on life, I would recommend these next several verses just meditating on these things, reading it over and over, understanding that, that Paul is not using hyperbole. He is not exaggerating anything. Paul is telling the truth about what he's about to describe. Paul begins to give us a resume of suffering that he and his companions have experienced for the sake of proclaiming the gospel, the truth of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. And remember, what compels or constrains Paul and his companions is quite simply the love of Christ, knowing that Jesus died for all those who would believe upon him. Now, Paul begins this, as I said, the preamble to this. Paul says that that. Our ministry, me and my ministry team, Paul says, have never been a hindrance or an obstacle for the body of Christ to fulfill its mission. We put no obstacle in, in, in anyone's way so that no fault may be found with our ministry, but as servants of God, we commend ourselves in every way. Paul just says, we've just simply been examples to you. And again, Paul will, 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 will say this more in the future. He's not commending himself. He's not bragging about himself. He's not trying to point out and say, I'm better than you are. He's saying, no, we have given ourselves fully to Christ. We are examples for you. And this is the model that we should see in churches today from church leaders. There's something to this that, that there should be a respect and an, even an obedience to the example of who our church leaders are. That's why, that's why it's very clear in Scripture that not many are called to be in positions of authority and to teach because they're going to receive a much stricter, harsher judgment from the Lord. It means my life is under a microscope, and I need to make sure that what I am doing and saying to you is true in my life and not just simply an act I put on on Sundays and Wednesdays. And far too often, that litmus test is failed by many men who attempt to enter the ministry. They're in it either for financial gain or popularity or simply a career choice. And that's something to be avoided. If what we see in a, in a pastor is all sizzle and no steak, right? It's all, it's all talk and no walk. It's all about what things look like, yet they're found out later in their life to, to just have been a liar. 
someone who was dishonest with money or had inappropriate relationships. These things come out all the time and it's tragic because it's an absolute just black eye on the witness to Jesus. It's not a black eye to Jesus, understand. Jesus never gets a black eye, he's perfect. And the truth of his life, death, and resurrection is always true. It's a black eye on the witness to Jesus. We have to be aware and cautious about what we say and do, how we act. Our lives mean something because they're witnessing to who Jesus is in us. And Paul says, we have never presented an obstacle for you. And there's a whole nother talk we could have about this, but how many times, perhaps we've even found ourselves in this situation, have we looked at churches or pastors and went, you're the reason that I stumbled and fell. You're the reason that I left the faith. You're the reason that I was wounded and didn't trust the church anymore. Again, listen, this isn't about a person. It's about Jesus. It's about us pointing to Jesus in all things. It should be done with integrity. It should be done with honesty. And like Paul says, without a hindrance to anyone. But the point is, it's for the purpose of pointing to Jesus. Now, look at what Paul says in the rest of verse 4. <clears throat> As servants of God, we commend ourselves in every way. It's not like complimenting ourselves, but we put forward our life as an example for you in every way. Paul's going to do three things with the rest of his letter to the Corinthians here in 2 Corinthians. First of all, in the next chapter, chapter 7, he's going to conclude that whole issue of the brother who was in sin, who was excommunicated from the church, and then Paul has called the church to welcome him back in and to love him and restore him. He's going to finish off with that issue. And then the rest of the scripture, really, in chapters 8 through the end of the book, Paul's going to have two themes that he really drives home. Number one is he's going to continually give an example of his suffering as an example to the church of how we're supposed to endure suffering for the sake of Jesus Christ. That's the first thing that he's going to keep coming back to and keep talking about as a touchstone for the church. The second is he's going to drive home the point about being generous to the, to the point of even you personally having need like being generous in abundance. And so here's how he begins this theme throughout the rest of the book. As servants of God, we commend ourselves in every way. We put ourselves forward as an example. By great endurance, in afflictions, hardships, calamities, beatings, imprisonments, riots, labors, sleepless nights, hunger, by purity, knowledge, patience, kindness, the Holy Spirit, genuine love, by truthful speech and the power of God with the weapons of righteousness for the right hand and for the left, through honor and dishonor, through slander and praise, we are treated as imposters and yet are true, as unknown and yet well known, as dying and behold we live, as punished and yet not killed, as sorrowful, yet always rejoicing, as poor, yet making many rich, as having nothing, yet possessing everything. We have spoken freely to you, Corinthians. Our heart is wide open. You are not restricted by us, but you are restricted in your own affections. In return, I speak as to children, widen your hearts also. 
This is why I say this is a good meditation for a quiet time between you and the Lord. Just to go, I would love to spend time and go over every word in this list or every description in this list. I'd love to go down the list and just talk about each one and cross-reference perhaps the ways that we know Paul endured or suffered these things. But suffice it to say, Paul, in his ministry to the church, says, stop and use me as an example. Here's all the things that we've suffered. Now, you'll notice that in that list, there are a lot of dualities. There are a lot of good, but then there's a lot of bad as well. Paul says we have experienced everything imaginable in the scope of human emotion for the purpose of the ministry of the gospel. It hasn't been all wine and roses, but it also hasn't all been down in the dumps in the pit of despair. He says it's been everything. We've experienced every emotion And he ends up in verse 11 saying, we have spoken freely to you, Corinthians. Our heart is wide open. Paul is saying something that I hope we can say. My life is an open book. You can look at every deep, dark corner of my heart and and you'll see that I've experienced bad things, but I've also experienced good things and that I'm compelled and I'm constrained to point everything, my good experiences and my bad experiences to use all of those to point to Jesus, to point to Christ. And then he says something that's deeply convicting. In verse 12, Paul says, you are not restricted by us, but you are restricted in your own affections. Remember, the Corinthians had a lot of things they wanted to criticize Paul for. Paul, the reason that we're having problems in our church, the the reason that, that we're suffering so many things is because you, as our founder and pastor, have done these things that just didn't make us happy. And how often, and I don't say this as a defense from the pastoral position, but how often have we heard that argument that the reason someone is leaving a church is because the pastor did them wrong or that elder didn't come over and talk to me and pray for me or that person looked at me sideways. Paul says, listen, you are not restricted by us. We don't govern to you your relationship with the Lord. We offer our lives as examples of that. We compel you, we teach you, we encourage you, but we don't restrict you. If you're restricted in your life at all, it's because of your own affections. If you're not experiencing the power of God in your life, Paul would say it's not because someone else is restraining you, It's because you aren't giving your life to Jesus fully. Your affection is for something else. It's somewhere else. Your affection isn't on and for the Lord. And then Paul does what pastors often have to do in verse 13. Parenthetically, he says, I speak as to children. He says, in return, widen your hearts also. Widen your heart. Open up your heart where we get that concept. Open your heart. Widen your heart. The Lord wants to come in and he wants to consume you. He wants to fill you with joy. And even though there may be experiences where we have to echo what Job says, the Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Widen your heart to accept everything that God has for you so that your affections aren't limited. Be be willing to open up and accept everything God has for you because here's what we know of God 
is that whether we're experiencing something that's hard, that is a tribulation, that is a trial, like Paul described in the beginning part of his list, or we're experiencing God's grace and honor in our lives, it's because God has a purpose for it, for our good and for his glory, as we like to say. It's to the praise of his glorious grace. And so the call for us is to reflect and meditate upon Paul's example in how he pursued the ministry, knowing that we have been called by God to partner in that ministry and to not restrict our affections, but rather to open our hearts to the Lord so that we might be compelled, constrained, controlled by the love of Christ. Amen.